Every tangible piece of evidence to do with the case had been gutted from the file and from the record. It had vanished. And he basically executed Patricia Galea, the Sydney woman, mother of a teenage girl and mother of a 10-month-old baby, in cold blood in an apartment in West Hollywood. He could fix anything from a horse race to a murder. Well, that's the way it seemed in Sydney in those days. I'm Andrew Rule. This is Life and Crimes. Today we're going to talk about the life and death of an Australian scoundrel and scallywag called Bruce Galea. Now, Bruce Galea had a famous surname. His father was the late, great Perse Galea. And Perse Galea was so famous at one stage back in the 60s and 70s that his name was a byword for huge gambling. And in fact, Australian rules or VFL football fans in Melbourne will recall that the great Carlton Ruckman Percy Jones, real name Peter, was dubbed Percy by his teammates and eventually by the entire playing fraternity and everyone else. He once went missing in action and it turned out that he'd gone off on a bit of a betting binge, perhaps interstate. When he got back from his betting binge, he was immediately dubbed Percy after Percy Galea because Percy Galea was just so famous as a massive punter, as I think an SP bookmaker, as a proprietor of illegal casinos and gambling games, as a card player, and most of all probably he was known to some people, at least in Sydney, as the bagman, the middleman bagman, who ran bribes between members of the underworld SP bookies and proprietors of casinos and others, and corrupt police and politicians. Percy was the middleman that could fix things and make them happen. He could fix anything from a horse race to a murder. Well, that's the way it seemed in Sydney in those days. Now, that's the background. That's Perse Galea. Perse was the father of Bruce. And we're talking about Bruce Galea, who inherited what was left of his father's illegal gambling empire in the late 70s after Perse's death. And Bruce, we can talk about, frankly, this week because he died last week and his wake will be held at a Sydney Surf Lifesaving Club at Clavelli next Thursday. And there'll be some very interesting characters gathering at that wake. Of course, many of his contemporaries are already dead. Bruce was around 84 years old when he died. He died fairly well broke in Queensland. He was one of those gambling types that had lived very high on the hog while he was bringing in money. But uh, as a wise man in Sydney once said, good luck isn't hereditary, and his father's luck didn't rub off on him. And in the end, whereas Purse had died relatively rich, Bruce had seen the illegal gambling business die under him because of the boom in licensed casinos. And by the time he died a week ago, he was relatively broke and relatively alone. I believe he'd had a stroke some years ago and in the end, he was just another lonely old man with a lot of memories. But among those memories is something that we're going to probe today because one of the things about Bruce Galea is that he was regarded widely 
as the sort of affable, mellow son of a rich man. He wasn't regarded by a lot of people as particularly menacing, particularly nasty, unlike his father Percy. Percy had been born in Malta and had come to Australia as a poor boy, as a little boy, and had grown up on the wrong side of the tracks in Sydney in the Depression and World War II. Bruce had grown up in relative uh, affluence. He'd been sent to one of the good Catholic private schools and he had become a pretty handy rugby union player. Uh, Like his father, Percy, he was a champion handball player, as his father was before him. He was probably reasonably handy with his fists, a little bit, a little bit tough, and was brought up on gambling and was, you know, good at all the gambling things. He could play cards, he could play billiards. He had been, or was at one stage, a licensed bookmaker, apart from being a an illegal SP bookmaker, but he, he wasn't a great success as a licensed bookie. Really, the Galeas did better on the other side of the ledger, as it well-informed punters. Bruce, in his 30s, met and married a rather glamorous young woman called Patricia Donoghue. Now, Patricia Donoghue came from Western Sydney, from Bankstown. Patricia Donoghue had a chequered past, she was a poor girl from a poor family, nothing wrong with that. She was clearly beautiful from a young age. It would appear that she got pregnant at the age of 15 and had a baby girl at the age of 16. And subsequently, some say, she uh, joined the ranks of the oldest profession and she became most probably what is euphemistically called a high-class escort. People in that situation were called models back in those days, but she was more an escort who was paid very well to accompany wealthy men around town. And it was in that capacity, they say, that she met and won the heart of Bruce Galea. And it was a first marriage for both of them. And uh, she was a few years younger than Bruce. He was in his early 30s. She was in her mid-20s, I think, when they met. And she had, in 1973, another baby girl. She already had the daughter that she'd had earlier, who was by this stage a young teenager, uh, being brought up by her parents back in Bankstown. And that little girl, I think, was called Galia. And she had a little girl with Bruce Galea. And when that baby was 10 months old in early 1974, Patricia decided to go to Los Angeles. Now, the cover story was that she was taking money over there. She took with her some $6,500 or $7,000 US, I imagine that was. And at the time, that was quite a sum in modern money that would equate as more than $30,000. And the idea was that she was going to use that money to set up uh, some sort of clothing store or boutique in Beverly Hills in LA. Now, whether this was an idea she cooked up with her husband, Bruce, I don't know. Uh, possibly no one does know now, but that was the story. But What actually happened was she left the baby behind with Bruce, which would suggest that she intended to come back. Who'd know? And she went to LA, and when she was in LA, she 
met and became extremely friendly with a very different group of people from the gambling milieu in Sydney. And she became heavily involved with a soul musician called Eugene Sinegal. And Eugene Sinegal was a, a guitarist that some likened to Jimi Hendrix, uh, but he was a soul singer, guitarist. Uh, he'd moved from New Orleans where he was in a band, I think, called Sam and the Soul Brothers or a name like that. They were a recording band. They did make a couple of records. And he'd moved across to LA where he had a bit of a name as a playboy, a bit of a jet setter, uh, a bit of an operator, and he was playing in a more psychedelic outfit called Sage. And it was in this phase of his career that the glamorous Sydney socialite, as she was called, Patricia Galea, met him and struck up a relationship with him. And she or they leased an apartment in West Hollywood and quite a good apartment block. And she pelled up with the group of people who knocked around with her young and very hip musician, Eugene Sinegal. And this was a group of people that included a guy called Mercury Washington, who was a tailor, a very gifted tailor. He could make clothes and various other people who were on the fringes of the music scene. It would appear that Eugene persuaded Patricia that she should spend some of her money at least financing an album for him and maybe starting up a music publishing business, etc., etc. LA at that time, of course, was pretty well the centre of, of the world when it came to filmmaking and a lot of recording artists and others were in that scene. It was a growing, booming scene and it's where people from all over the States and further afield turned up and attempted to make their fortune. And so it was that basically the runaway wife of the Sydney racing identity, Bruce Galea, was in an apartment with her lover, Eugene Sinegal, in April 1974. Now, undoubtedly, word of this must have reached Bruce Galea back in Sydney because you would think that uh, with a 10-month-old baby back in Sydney that the idea would be that Patricia would return fairly rapidly from LA to see the baby and so on and so forth, but she didn't go. So clearly there was an estrangement and in such circumstances it's highly likely that Bruce Galea and or his father Perse, I have to say, uh, would have become very angry and incensed at her behaviour because this was the beautiful girl it was a bit like the pretty woman setup where the actor marries the, the former hooker but in this case the former hooker moves on and the actor is not some nice friendly geezer the actor is a tough guy from sydney who is great and good friends with some very very nasty mobsters and the connection here is that the Galeas were very close to the arch race fixer, standover man, gunman and all-round bad guy, George Freeman. Now, George Freeman was an extraordinary race fixer. He could get people killed. He could get people crippled. He was one of the 
handful of people that sort of ran the underworld and racing in Sydney in that era. He was notorious, he was infamous, and he was in some quarters fairly popular. He was popular because he had the happy knack of being able to tip winners to those people he wanted to impress or to influence, such as judges and senior police and politicians, because they didn't really want to know how George knew what was going to win, but they always greatly appreciated the information that he gave them, which gave him a lot of pull and a lot of influence. But George wasn't just a Sydney racing identity. George had pelled up from the mid-60s onwards with American crime identities, notably mafia people and especially a man called Joe Dan Tester. Now, Joe Dan Tester visited George Freeman four times over a few years in Sydney, and there are photographs of Joe Dan Tester and another American mafia figure, Nick Giordano, I think his name was. They went pig shooting or kangaroo shooting out at Burke in the flat country of outback New South Wales with the big-time Sydney crime figure, Lenny McPherson, alias Mr Big. Now, Lenny McPherson was a very menacing figure. He was an ally of George Freeman, and this connection with the Los Angeles-based mafia was very, very strong. And we know how strong it was because later on, after the events that we're going to describe in a minute, Later on, George Freeman got into trouble in Los Angeles because he was picked up without a passport because he had travelled into LA on a false passport, which he then hid. He was picked up by the FBI who demanded to see his passport and he stayed silent. He wouldn't take them to show them the false passport. In fact, he flew a friend in from Sydney who went and found the passport and destroyed it. And his very good friends in the mafia made available to him half a million dollars, which in the 70s was a fantastic sum of money. It was the price of a massive mansion. It was a terrific amount of money when, you know, a really good house might cost you $50,000. They also told him that they had a judicial figure that they were blackmailing. The judicial figure, I don't know if it's a judge or a prosecutor, but it was someone who could wield influence in the Los Angeles court system and so much influence indeed that George Freeman was flown home without any time in jail and without being convicted or even charged on serious offence of entering the United States without the correct passport. Had it been the ordinary person, they would have been jailed. This tells you one thing we need to know, that George Freeman, if he wanted to, could reach out across the Pacific to his contacts in Los Angeles and get almost anything done. And we need to understand that because on April the 15th, in the early hours of April 15, 1974, a terrible thing happened. Patricia Galea had been intending earlier that day, well, probably on the 14th of April, earlier, to catch a plane across America to New Orleans, where she was going on business with her new friend, Mercury Washington. And she and Washington and perhaps others had gone out to the airport in LA to catch the plane, but they'd missed the plane. 
which is a funny thing, who knows, they came back to her apartment or their apartment in West Hollywood and they entered the apartment to find that there were two or three masked and armed men and these people had already tied up the occupant of the apartment who was just babysitting the apartment and they were apparently ransacking the place looking for money and jewellery and so on. That was what they said, where's the money, where's the money? Now, it was known to some people, including Patricia's new friends, that she had this $6,400 hidden somewhere and she was going to use that to help set up this uh, Beverly Hills store. They had, in fact, hidden it in the freezer in the apartment, which even in 1974 I would have thought wasn't a terribly original hiding place. It certainly became a cliché later on and one of the first places that people would look for cash. But anyway, the crooks didn't look in the freezer for the cash. They were able to find $400. They found a $1,400, I think, gold cigarette lighter, which tells you the sort of stuff that Patricia gathered around her, some diamond rings, which were other things that Patricia gathered around her, and two mink coats, which again tells you the sort of stuff she liked to have with her. These would be the sort of gifts with which she had been showered by Bruce Galea earlier on when they were courting, you would imagine. And these armed robbers who were masked and therefore you'd think unrecognised, decided to kill the victims. One man was carrying a shotgun, a 410 shotgun, and the other, one or the other two, were carrying knives. And the guy with the shotgun, who seemed to be giving the orders, told the other one to start cutting their throats. Now, this guy started to slash the throats of the victims. He didn't do a particularly good job because I think all the ones that were slashed survived that night, although one might have later died, I think. The other four actually survived these slashings. But while this was happening, naturally enough, the very terrified Patricia begged for her life. And the man with the gun, I think he said something about, you know, shoot the bitch. He put the barrel of the gun in her mouth and pulled the trigger. And he basically executed Patricia Galea the Sydney woman, mother of a teenage girl and mother of a 10-month-old baby, in cold blood in an apartment in West Hollywood, all over some cash that they didn't get and a little tiny bit of cash, jewellery and mink coats that they did get. The bandits then fled the scene. Now, this was even by the standards of 1970s Los Angeles, a very violent and corrupt city. This was a terrible terrible crime and it made headlines on both sides of the world in Sydney and in Los Angeles and possibly other newspapers in America because it was brutal. It involved some people who were mixed up in the music scene and this so-called Sydney socialite that the Americans took uh, Patricia at face value and called her a Sydney socialite, which at one level of society she certainly was. You would think that given this much publicity and this much international concern that the homicide detectives of Los Angeles, of the famous LAPD, would act very swiftly and get a result very soon. 
Within two days, they knew who they were looking for. They had the names of at least of two men. One was John Threlkeld, and the other was Leonard Turner. Now, these two guys were fairly young and extremely violent, just very bad guys, obviously very willing, uh, the sort of people who would kill very willingly. And if it was true that they had been sent to do this job, it would make sense that they would be chosen because they were the sort of armed robbers that did those sort of crimes. They were very violent robbers. The police, despite knowing who the two hot suspects were, didn't grab them because they went on the lam. They went interstate and they were picked up in Michigan, a long way from California, a few months later, where they had committed another savage crime. I think that also involved a murder. And they were convicted of the murder in Michigan and they went to jail in Michigan. But, and this is where it gets quite interesting, within a short time, by 1980 or thereabouts, their convictions and their sentences had been overturned on appeal. And so those two murderers were back on the streets. Now, This is when the legal system in California should have swung into action and grabbed these guys, brought them back to California to face the courts for the Galea murder and the vicious wounding of the other people. But what actually happened was nothing. Nothing happened. These two suspects, murderers, terrible crime, high-profile crime, They'd been nominated fairly quickly back in LA because it turns out that one of the group of people that was injured, uh, this guy Washington, had met or knew somehow these crooks and it might have been Washington, Mercury Washington, who'd accidentally dropped a bit of gossip about this woman from Sydney who had a large amount of cash, which of course is a very dangerous thing to talk about. And... It might be that that's the reason the witnesses did have their throats slashed because there was that slight connection. But in any case, the Los Angeles police totally dropped the ball. They did not follow up. Now, part of you says, well, that can happen. You know, it's a big country. There's a lot of different states. There's a lot of different jurisdictions. It was pre-computer era, so everybody was relying on telephone calls don't think even fax machines at that stage, but it was relatively primitive compared with today, and maybe they could fall through the cracks, and that, that's possible. But it turns out that it's more sinister than that. And we'll be back after this. Access a world of true crime podcasts on CrimeX Plus, where award-winning journalists take a deep dive into unsolved cases. Every week, we're waking up to a dead woman. A dead mother, sister, auntie, grandmother. It's not good enough. From the team that brought you The Teacher's Pet, Shadow of Doubt and Dying Rose, unlock early, ad-free and bonus content from brand new series and flagship shows such as I Catch Killers with Gary Jubilin. One was shot in the mouth and I thought he was dead. Another one had been shot with a shotgun and I got the overspray. Search for CrimeX Plus on Apple Podcasts to start digging deep into the world of true crime. Many years later, in 2006, and this is what, 32 years later, whatever, a new owner of the apartment where the murder happened 
decided to find out the history of the apartment and he found the old newspaper clippings about the shootings and he became interested in it, as you would be, and he went around and dug up some of the police from the era and in the end he was referred to a sort of a cold case unit where the LAPD had re-employed retired detectives to look and rake over some old cold cases. And this apartment owner went to an old detective who'd come back from retirement to look over these cases. And this detective was called Larry Brandenburg. And he said, look here, Larry, what went on with this case? You know, the police seemed to know who to look for, but they just never went through with it. What happened? And Brandenburg became intrigued and he went and fished out what was left of the files on the Galea case. And the truth is that there was hardly any files. I think there was probably an empty folder. And he confirmed later that there was no case notes. The weapons, the gun and the knife, which had been recovered, they must have been left at the apartment, they had disappeared. The blood samples and fingerprints had disappeared. Every tangible piece of evidence to do with the case had been gutted from the file and from the record. It had vanished. And all that was left really was a folder with some, you know, a couple of names on the cover. There was just nothing to work with, apart from presumably the names of the original suspects, Threlk, Geld and Leonard Turner. And Larry Brandenburg was slightly diplomatic about this, but he made it clear that this was highly irregular. It didn't look good, that it was, you know, very strange and it looked really as if someone had got to the file and emptied it deliberately. And this is where this case becomes more and more sinister because while we are happy to believe that the America of that era and this era for that matter has in it hundreds and hundreds of people capable of, you know, killing people in armed robberies, it's highly unlikely that those sort of footloose, crazy crims have got the capacity to corrupt law enforcement at a high level, have got the capacity to pay off detectives and prosecutors and people like that to get a result. That sort of corruption, you would think, belongs more in the realm of highly organised crime. It's quite believable that particularly in the 70s, particularly then, when the mafia really reigned supreme, that members of the mob in LA and other big cities would have a direct line to City Hall, they would have tame prosecutors and tame detectives and tame police chiefs and tame city officials on side who could help them get rid of evidence, doctor cases, get at juries, tamper with witnesses and all that sort of stuff. And this is what it looked like. And it's no doubt that's what it looked like to Larry Brandenburg, the old detective, although he didn't say so in as many words. That's what it looked like to anybody and everybody who heard about it in the year 2010, which was when the authorities in LA finally got around to 
levelling charges against the two suspects, who by this stage were two middle-aged men, middle-aged men with very, very bad records. Murderers, robbers, torturers, you know, really bad people, very evil. But correctly, the defence counsel for those men said, well, this is 30 years too late, there's no evidence against our clients, there's no weapons, there's no fingerprints, there's no, there's nothing, there's no forensics. So all you've got are allegations. There was only one witness left that could be found and that was uh, this guy Washington. And after 30 plus years, but by this stage it's getting to 36 years, I think, uh, at this stage his testimony would be easily questioned whether you know he could remember things clearly after 36 years. No jury is going to convict on the basis of one man's memory. And so probably correctly, the two guilty people walked from court uh, as free men. And I understand that to this day, uh, one of them is still a free man, although the other, I think, is locked up because of yet another murder. That court case where these guys walked stirred up some interest in Australia. Stories were written about this fascinating old case, both in the Los Angeles Times and in Sydney newspapers, because it was clearly such a sinister and spooky event. No one then, of course, was pointing the finger at Bruce Galea. Percy Galea, his father had died back in, I think, 77, but by the year of 2010, Bruce Galea was getting on a bit. He was in his early 70s, but he was very much alive and kicking and no one really wanted to poke the bear and make suggestions publicly that there was something very rotten about the murder of his first wife. And there was something to think about here because when news broke that Patricia was murdered back in 74, the people in the know in Sydney, the people who were involved with corrupt police and involved with corrupt politicians and involved in the colourful racing identity world inhabited by the likes of George Freeman and Bill Waterhouse and, and Percy Galea and so on, they all concluded that there was something extremely sinister and fishy about this murder, that it so happened that the beautiful Patricia had run away from Sydney to LA in those days when it was a very different world. Many people around the world were automatically racist, uh, the idea that a white woman in Sydney would run off with a black musician in Los Angeles would raise more than eyebrows. It wouldn't mean anything these days, but in those days it did. All police and judges and others will tell you that the family court is where the real danger lies, that angry wives and angry husbands are the people who become the most dangerous because they are very, very distressed and angered by the actions of their spouses. The term crime of passion is a very real one and it is one of the great motivations for murder. Greed, of course, is one of the others. It was widely held in a tight-knit group of underworld people and racing identities 
that it was too much of a coincidence that Patricia Galea had been killed only weeks after deciding that she was running away and staying in Los Angeles. It was clear to anybody who knew what was what that the Kaleas were very close to George Freeman and George Freeman was a cold-blooded killer and would organise killings at the drop of a hat. He'd probably done a few himself as a young gunman and that he, most importantly, as we've discussed already, was very heavily connected with mobsters in Los Angeles and that he could easily reach out if he got the nod from the Galeas. The fact is no one really wanted to say it, particularly on the record at the time, because at that time Bruce Galea, although he was an illegal gambling proprietor, etc., etc., because he was a protected species, because he had political and police protection, he really didn't have any serious convictions against his name. But let's just run through a few things that we know about Bruce Galea, the man who will be laid to rest in Sydney in the next few days. Bruce Galea, all his life, was mixed up and helped to run illegal gaming enterprises. As such, he had to bribe police. He had to have heavy doormen who would be willing to hurt people if they wanted to come in and cause trouble or to rob the place. Bruce Galea was known to carry a pistol. I know someone who went with him to a card game that he used to run in Chinatown in Sydney and when Bruce Galea bent over the table, his associate saw that he had a pistol stuck down the back of his pants in his belt and that he habitually carried a handgun when he was working around the illegal casinos. And if he carried one, he was probably willing to use it. Bruce Galea, in 1995, faced a judicial inquiry in Sydney about illegal gambling, and he was required by that commission to answer questions honestly. And he went in there and he famously said to the commissioner, uh, you've got to do your job and I've got to do mine, so I won't be saying anything. And they say he turned up with his bag packed, his toothbrush, and he went off to jail. And Bruce Galea was jailed in 1995 for contempt of court for not answering questions. And he was jailed for more than two years, two years and three months, which is a record in Australia for contempt of court. He was released in 1997 to uh, a bit of uh, much fanfare in Sydney. He was a little bit of a folk hero. Uh, he went straight back to the casinos and to the racetrack and there was a bit of ballyhoo about it all. But what it showed was that Bruce Galea was a fairly steely figure who subscribed to the criminal code of never giving anyone up, of never talking to the authorities, of not giving evidence. He believed in going armed and so on and so forth. And so Bruce Galea showed himself all the way through to be at heart a very hard criminal. This was despite the fact that a lot of people regarded him as a more mellow figure than his old man, his, his father, Perskalea. There's not a lot to add to this story except a couple of loose ends that probably are straws in the wind. Both of them are in 1974 when 
Patricia Galea was murdered. And when the news broke in Sydney, Bill Allen, the then uh, famously corrupt senior policeman, a policeman who would later be promoted over 17 others by the then Premier Neville Rand, he was in 1974, already quite a senior policeman, but he was about to become later a deputy uh, commissioner, which showed the sort of pull he had around town. He was a confidant of the crooked bookmaker and all-round race fixer and low-life Bill Waterhouse. He met Bill Waterhouse. And he explained to Waterhouse what had happened to Patricia Galea, and he told Waterhouse there was no doubt that the Galeas, Bruce Galea, or the Galea's father and son, had organised her murder. Now, the fact that Bill Allen said it doesn't make it true, but it's interesting that he said it. Bill Waterhouse, who of course was against the Galeas because they were big punters and he was a, a big bookmaker, he thought enough of this that he warned his sons, his then quite young sons, Robbie and David, against crossing the Galeas. He said, obviously, they're very bad people and very dangerous and willing to have people murdered. And so he warned them about that. He implicitly believed Bill Allen's allegation about the murder. And there's one other funny little thing that happened around that time. A couple of little things happened around that time. One was Bill Casey, a prominent racing writer, a sports editor, very well-respected senior journalist of the era. He knew Perskillia quite well. He'd been friendly with him. He'd written stories about him and with him, got along very well with him, probably you know, ran a bit of a PR line in the papers in favour of Perskillia, which happened in Sydney in those days. And after this terrible murder in LA, Bill Casey thought he'd extend the hand of friendship to Perskillia and he went and saw him and sort of expressed his condolences about the death of the daughter-in-law and he was absolutely shocked by the vehemence and hostility of the reply that he got from Perskillia. Perskillia, who was routinely very nice to reporters and so forth, turned extremely nasty, extremely hostile and made it very clear he didn't want to hear anything about it and didn't want to discuss it. This Bill Casey found sufficiently shocking that he told other journalists about it when he got back to the office and he went down in folklore. And we'll be back after this to finish our story. A troubled young woman. Her evil parents. We never had any issues between us. Has justice been done? I'm in a prison. Join journalist Richard Gilliatt as he delves into one of Australia's most gripping cases. Shadow of Doubt, a new podcast investigation from The Australian. I cannot find one of these allegations that's possible. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. One other thing happened, and that was that a well-known form analyst around Sydney, a person that I know well and I have known well for more than 20 years, this form analyst was known and respected by people on all sides of racing because he had the sort of brain that could calculate odds and assimilate form figures and facts very easily. And a lot of people knew him and he knew them. And he was quite friendly with Bruce Galea. And when Galea had been a bookmaker 
this form analyst that helped him frame his markets and so on and so forth. And this form analyst used to like to go to the cinema and he went to the cinema in George Street in Sydney and he saw a film which he, he thinks it was the film Cromwell, but anyway, it doesn't matter what it was. And he said that he came out of the theatre at intermission and who did he see but Bruce Galea, a man that he'd never seen at the cinema before. And he walked up and said, you know, hello, Bruce. And it was mid-April and it was that day that he heard about this terrible thing that happened in Los Angeles. He was always struck later with what Bruce Galea said to him. Bruce Galea did not tell him that his wife had been murdered in a robbery, which is what had happened. She'd been shot in the head by an armed robber. He said that she'd died in an accident. He said she'd been killed accidentally. And the form analyst never forgot that because it was a totally incongruous thing to say. And for that reason, if for no other, he formed the view that although he liked Bruce Galea before that and sometimes after that, that there was a very big question mark hanging over the murder of Bruce Galea's wife, Patricia. A lot of those people who will attend the wake at Clavelli Surf Lifesaving Club next Thursday will be thinking the same thing. They just won't talk about it much. Thanks for listening. Life and Crimes is a Sunday Herald Sun production for True Crime Australia. Our producer is John Burton. If you like the show, leave a five-star rating and a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to know more about these stories, links are in the description of this episode.